This is the Saddler's Post, conversations on horses, leather trade, and the art of saddlery, with our host, Christian Love. My guest today on the Saddler's Post is leather worker Tony Fantasia. To call Tony a leather worker seems almost one-dimensional. I would describe Tony more as an artist whose medium is leather. Tony, you turned to leather work after being diagnosed with PTSD, is that correct? That's correct, yes. So, uh, to be honest, that I was researching um, some things on neuroscience, and uh, I suffer badly with uh, ADD, ADHD, and as an adult, you start uh, doing all this homework, and uh, I, I come across you and leather work and, you know, kind of searching leather work as therapy, and, and up pops you, and I was fascinated um, with your journey, so I... I wanted to have you on to to discuss that, and I would I I really hope that you feel comfortable sharing uh, sharing your story with us. Uh, thank you, Christian. I, I absolutely do. I it took me quite a while to get to get comfortable talking about myself and how I feel and the things that have brought me to the place where I'm at. But and and learning how to talk about them has really been the thing that saved my life. So. I appreciate you reaching out and and having an interest in both of the things that I am passionate about uh, and giving me a, a, a chance to have a conversation. So thank you. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah, I, I appreciate you coming on. And uh, so, the, I mean, where to start? Because you turned to leather work as, a, as part of therapy, but your your background if you want to just say hey look whatever starting point you want i i guess i want to give people a frame of reference but i don't think it matters where they're at what their career is or whether they do it for a living i think if someone's in a in a place where they're they need help it, it like why why leather? Like, what attracted you to leather, and and how did how did it come up as a as a form of therapy? I guess I want to know. I'm 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 gonna have to start like at early childhood, but I, I promise I'll I'll keep it brief and give the cliff notes version of my past. Oh, that's fine. Be but, you know we're here to to help and share with people, so please don't uh, cut corners. Okay. Fair enough. Any, anything that you have to edit out for time's sake, feel free. You're not going to hurt my feelings. But um, I was, I'm a twin born to a military couple. My mom and my dad met in the Army, um, the U.S. Army, and they were stationed over in Augsburg, Germany, when we were born. My father was a combat medic. My mother was uh, also a medic. And... My father was also a an avid uh, Harley enthusiast, and he still is to this day. So I grew up in the military around soldiers and tanks and weapons, and uh, and then with the, on the biker side, I was around leather all the time. And I remember his jackets and his bags smelling like leather, and it was it was a, it was a scent that I grew up with, and the sound of it and the feel of it. I've always been attracted to it. But growing up, anything that was nice and leather was always very, very expensive. Uh, and I could never, even as a, you know, a working teenager in high school, could never really afford the stuff that I wanted. So I go through high school. I, I, I was not a, I'm mean, going to talk about my education because I was not a good student in high school. I was a good person. I was just a horrible student, uh, a daydreamer and um, unfocused. And I, I graduated middle of my class in a very small military high school in San Antonio, Fort Sam Houston, Cole High School, go Cougars. And I did the bare minimum that I, I could do to, to get by. And I had a very turbulent, difficult childhood growing up. Um, family issues, personality issues. I'm not going to go into all that, but it, it played uh, a huge part in the way I I became later on in life um you know what I'll, I'll, I'll talk about some of it but my father and mother 
married young in the army. Then my brother and I came along soon after. I don't think any of any of them were ready to have kids. The dysfunction began very early and remained as he was trying to climb his way into a military career. Uh, the image of a uh, stable family were important for the career in the military back then. You had to convince your command that there's at least, you know, one or more people out there that could stand to be around you long enough to consider you a stable individual. So the family image was something that was cultivated at the very beginning, but the family was never really there. It was an empty family. And I hid a lot from my family. I hid through reading books. I hid through drawing pictures. I hid through doing art, riding my bicycle, anything that I could do to keep me out of my family's eyesight helped me survive. It, it, it helped me avoid the confrontation, which initially led to the emotional and physical battery. And um, if I just stayed off their radar and kept myself occupied and didn't get in trouble, that I could be left alone to do what I wanted to do and just be relatively ignored, thankfully ignored and left out of their, their, hot mess fiasco chaos so art was my escape art and cycling were my my two big escapes um i loved it i i loved the fantasy of art i can draw anything that i see but i can't take a picture out of my imagination and put it onto a surface i could never abstract a thought into an image and then recreate that image in anything that resembled what that was in my head. So I was glad that I could do the drawing, but there was, I was missing something. I was missing the, 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 the hands. I wanted more of my hands in it. So when I, I would gravitate towards Plato and sculpting with that and, you know, building, making stuff with wood out of my, my uncle's wood shop or my grandfather's wood shop. So I, I really had a fondness for the tactile forms of art and expression, but I, I really, I pursued the drawing and the painting my entire life. And I, I look at it like, like poker and now like statistics. You can, you can learn it in 10 minutes, but it's going to take you a lifetime to master and uh, I figured that painting is one of those things that I'll get good at before I die and I'll, I'll keep working on it. So went off to the army after I graduated high school. I mean, I ran away to the army. I, I joined two or three months before I graduated high school. And the day after I graduated, I was off to basic training and I didn't look back for about 13 years, 12 or 13 years. I came back, um, had a very irregular military career. I'm a large guy by by size and by nature. I'm 6'2", and right now, uh, 300 pounds. Uh, three years ago, I was closer to 500 pounds. So I've always been large, and I've always battled my weight, and that, that played into the military thing because they're always looking at more about how you look than how you perform. Your appearance is nine-tenths the law, in the in the the 1990s army and if you didn't look good in your da photo then it really didn't matter what else you did so i always had a a target on my back because of my size and because of my weight by the command now i loved being a combat medic loved it um i'm a helper i'm a healer i want to help i've always prayed to god that when i get older the two things i want to be is useful and helpful in some way to somebody because I was abandoned pretty much as a child my entire life. I've been abandoned. I've never been taught how to do anything outside of school. I've had to learn the basic fundamentals of life. I had to learn how to provide for myself when I ran away. And thankfully the military gave me structure, but just enough to make me dangerous for myself because I, I got overconfident in what other people were able or willing to provide for me and I became very dependent on those people. Now if you need to ask any more questions, please feel free to jump in and cut me off. Or else I'll, I'll keep running like a steam yeah. over here. Well I excuse me. Yeah. I uh 
you know, first off, a few things you're saying are resonating with me that, you know, carrying over into my own life. It's interesting. Um, but I think, um, yeah, we've got the idea, the foundation of, of, um, of your background, not to do it any disservice, but to, to get to the tactile part then, um, of, of working with your hands and expressing your art that way. Um, what was your first entry into that? When I, I got married right before I went to Iraq in 2004. And when I came back, I was, there was my second deployment. My, my with 20 minutes after I got back, my wife was pregnant with our son. So I was now transitioning from the military to the civilian world. I, I was a, a brand new husband, full-time husband and a brand new father. And I was completely blown out. My, my, I was overwhelmed and the, the PTSD set in not just the new stuff, not just the stuff from, from the wars, but the stuff from my early childhood just came flooding back. And I was, I was not sleeping. I was very combative. I had gotten hooked on um, sleeping pills in Afghanistan just to be able to sleep. And I had to, I, I had to cut that out and go cold turkey before I came home um, because I didn't want to be addicted to pills. But I was having to take six Ambien for 45 minutes of sleep in Mosul or in Mosul in Iraq in, in 04. Um, we were getting mortared all the time. And I worked in, I was the combat medic in the emergency room at, at this field hospital. So we're getting combat patients, casualties all the time. And the, so our sleep cycles were just messed up. So I was, by the time I get home, I'm, I'm brain addled. I'm fatigued. I'm stressed out from the conversion from the military to the civilian, from husband to father. It, it was bad. And one day I, I had this wallet that some friends had made my father when I was just a child and he was active duty in Fort Devon, Massachusetts. Uh, Edna Minor was a lady that, uh, that made him this leather trifold wallet that she had carved meaningful symbols into that shows the Harley Davidson that showed his, his trucker road name that showed his, um, his military affiliation with this particular combat or a, a tour of duty out in, uh, in Egypt when I was a kid. It was beautiful. I, and I carried this wallet with me. He gave it to me. I carried this wallet with me for 30 years and completely disrespected it. And it started to fall apart. And when I wanted to replace it, I couldn't, I, I couldn't find anything that I could afford because Custom leather wallets were three and four hundred dollars, and I was a brand new father with you know a brand new civilian job, so I couldn't afford that. And my wife says, rather than pay somebody to do it, why don't you do it yourself? Why don't you make a wallet yourself? And I went to the local Tandy Leather Factory store here on Walsham Road in San Antonio, bought my first leather kit and little mallet and little set of tools and a bottle of stain. And I went home and I created this wallet with my own hand. It, it, it took me three weeks and the, the, the tooling was elementary and the lacing is ridiculous. But by the time I was done with it, I have this thing in my hand, a wallet. It, it, it functions as a wallet. It's solid. It's there it's decorated with things that were personal to me. And I did these things with my own two hands in what seemed like forever. But then when you're looking back, it was like just yesterday I started this, and I felt good for the first time in my life. I felt good about me and about something that I did and, and as something that I made that even when I'm dead, this thing will still be out there in the world. I, this is a, a something I could leave behind to the world. And when I started to think about all the things that I could express with myself and my hands and my imagination of these materials and different colors and combinations and decorations and designs, the, the infinite possibility of me 
became as apparent as the number of combinations of different types of wallets that are out there. And it's not that I initially I'm I'm thinking I can recreate myself through my through leather. I can I can express myself in ways that I've that appeal to the the the, the biker, that appeal to the soldier, that appeal to the the cyclist. I mean anything that I that I wanted I can make with leather. And the endless possibilities were astounding to me. And so I thought, what else can I do? So I started to make stuff. I started to to try different things in leather, Bible covers, guitar straps, knife sheaths, gun holsters. They were rough. They were raw. I gave everything away uh, because I just, I wanted the, the, the chance to practice. But that one wallet set off an avalanche of momentum and motivation and creative desire that I had never felt before. And I wanted more of that. Nice. I, I kind of, when I was looking forward to this conversation, this, you know, is what, um, you know, most leather workers, they, they'll, they'll talk about everything, uh, their tooling technique. Um, you know, they get so fixated on the, the, the craft part of it. And I'm kind of like, I don't care. I'm probably the, I'm the lousiest saddler I know. I do it. (laughs) I do it because I, I'm so passionate about it. And, and it's, it's so to, to hear you, say look this is the the vehicle where i get these hormone release this the serotonin or or whatever that um you know you get to create something one that yeah you can you can share with with family with friends i mean that wallet will forever be the foundation of of your future uh, mental health right that's it yeah um, now have- and, yeah and i can i can I can I can commiserate with you there. Um, you know, Sheridan style tooling. Anybody, any leather worker that knows leather working knows what Sheridan is and uh, how difficult it is to to get it quote unquote right. Um, and it becomes a bit of a, a standard learning tool. And your first your first patterns that you learn at a tool are Sheridan patterns. But I do not prefer to ever do Sheridan because Sheridan is already done so well by so many other people and the techniques that they employ to do that so well, they're beautiful, but I am not out there for technique. I'm out there for the end state, the, the process for the, how it makes me feel and how, what I do can make somebody else feel. Yeah. And if, if, and when I look at the imperfections in my work, and I compare it to other, other people's work. Yeah, my work is rudimentary in comparison to other people. It's, it's even people who have been doing this far less longer than I, far less as long as I have. That did not come out right. Oh, I, I know exactly what you mean. He, he, they're, they're, less than I. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting when I watch like really, really talented, skillful people and I that are younger than me, that have been doing it less time than me, and I think, wow, like... I could I could live two lifetimes and you know you admire that in them but I also sometimes um you know as I say when I look at your stuff I don't I don't think leather worker is is um is is the correct term you know because I see art I see an expression uh that really really comes through like it's 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 I don't I don't I'm not seeing I'm not breaking anything down that you're doing into oh look at his technique here or um you know well, none of that it's just I like it. wow you know leather was my gateway drug um leather leather was the first now I was a I was a, a pencil sketcher when I was a kid I've got I still have my sketchbooks from my early teen years when I was drawing everything I could find in tattoo magazines. And I, and I did it all in charcoal or graphite because I was terrified of the commitment of color. But I did 
I, I was always creative. I, I played music. I played saxophone. I drew. I read voraciously, although my reading material was all fantasy or Stephen King. Um, but leather became a... Leather was kind of like my Mjolnir. It was my, my Viking hammer. And when I was rebuilding myself and trying to craft an identity, leather became the hammer that I wielded against my fears and against the darkness in my, in my head. And it, it gave me focus. It allowed me to, it was the first time I ever painted with color was on a piece of, it was a leather Bible cover. It was a blue ichthys. No, it wasn't ichthys. It was a, um, a fleur-de-lis. And it was a, just a simple blue, like powder blue fleur-de-lis with, with a kind of a dark blue border. And that was the most terrifying thing I ever did because it was a commitment. It was done. Once it was on, it was on. And once I saw that, it was all beautiful. I was, I was impressed. I thought, I want to see more color on leather. And then I want to see more lines on leather. I want to see, I want to see tooling. I want to see indentations. I want to see light. I want to be able to, to do something and just appreciate how light plays on the backgrounding and on the beveling of the edges without using any color. And I, I noticed that, you know, if I use certain types of oil stains or certain types of water stains that I would get different, um, different color effects when I would do my shines. And when I saw these different effects, the different combinations of effects, and that if I, if I just explored my things my own way and saw things with through my own eyes as I always did in my life, because nobody else wanted to ever get in there with me. So I was always alone in my perspective. I didn't have anybody that I could share a perspective with. And people say, Oh yeah, I get it. I get it. No, they're like, you're kind of crazy. And you're, I had a psychiatrist tell me one time that I was mentally retarded with a learning disability. Those are his words. This was 1990. And that I would never amount to anything past a fifth grade education. Wow. And I believed that about myself for 30 years. Yeah, that's powerful. So uh, it, that's appalling and powerful because um, it's interesting when you said that, that fleur de lis, when you, it almost, like your technique and your exploration probably grew at the same rate as your self-awareness and belief in yourself grew. Well, like, that was, that was happening in real time. Yeah. Simultaneously. It was crazy. Yeah. It's almost like a tangible benchmark or a, therom a thermometer uh, of saying, you know, when I look at that, I know that I made progress as a human, right? Yeah, I improved through this through this one project. I could see myself changing in what I not only in what I could do, but what I could accept that I could do. That it was not beyond my belief that these things were possible. That there was more in me than I ever gave myself credit for. Other people started to see the changes in me as well very quickly. They saw my self isolation starting to break down. They saw my self. Um, I would, I would mute myself and they saw me talking more. They, I was interacting. I wasn't hiding from conversation. They, every project, my family, who were the only people that I really spoke to and those in my church, they saw the change in me as I emerged. And this gave me something to talk to them about that didn't have to deal with combat trauma or the things that I'd seen in war or the events of my childhood, I could talk about something ambiguous that was, we could both appreciate and they could get to know me on a different level than they ever tried to initially. Yeah. I find with mental health, um, to share and then have someone say, Oh yeah, I totally get it. And you think, no, you don't. <laughs> Like, how could you? Yeah. And, you know, I know, um, you know, ADHD is, is classified as a, as a mental health issue. It's 
all over social media. Everyone says, oh, it's my ADD, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, uh, I feel so disrespected when someone just... And how many times have you heard someone say PTSD inappropriately? Um, I mean, maybe they feel that they've oh, gone through okay. it. But I got a strong feeling about this one. I do. Yeah, please, please share. Initially, it. initially when I, it, it took me uh, three or four years after I got back from my, my second tour to acknowledge the fact that there was something wrong or that, that something wrong could be PTSD. I was in complete denial for about four years. And that denial almost destroyed my family. It almost led to my a divorce uh, between me and my wife um, and, and, you know, complete separation from me and my kids. It was nothing violent or volatile, but it was a complete breakdown of communication and trust. Um, and I was starting to pay attention to a lot of things that were going on in the, in the civilian world that I wasn't paying attention to when I was more in the military. And things were scary. I was getting confused by all the 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 hot topics of the day that I had to have an opinion about, but I couldn't find any information. And it was, I was starting to spiral and I saw PTSD for what PTSD really was. And then when I hear these celebrities, these actors and musicians out there on stage saying, Hey, you know, one hour of performing on stage in front of 40,000 people making $50 million is equivalent to me having PTSD and the and the military world just went bananas over that. I mean, they attacked that like it was nobody's business. I had to step back and say, okay, wait. Now, my PTSD is not just from the military. My PTSD was back to like six years old. So I, you know, I don't doubt that that person up there may be feeling something. So I'm not going to jump on that bandwagon and say, just because you're not a soldier or a police officer or, or a, a, a healthcare provider that you don't have it because you, you damn well can have it. You may very well have it, especially a celebrity who's hired into an industry to be a, a spokesperson for that industry and to, you know, be their weatherman and, and to be their advertiser and to be their brand representative. They have a tremendous amount of stress. You can absolutely have PTSD. You could absolutely have ADHD. You can have autism. You can have Asperger's. You can have, we can all have all of these things. The, the conditions, the syndromes, the, they're not abnormal. They are naturally occurring. They're occurring more often or they are being observed more frequently. But these things are, are completely normal psychological responses to the the influences of our environment. What is different between all of us is how we cope with them or whether we cope with them at all. And that's the fundamental problem is the absence of coping mechanisms. And most people struggle to maintain themselves with these syndromes that they may be subjected to without even realizing. And the ones who do say it, God bless them for saying it, because they have to say it. But we have to be willing to hear it. Even those of us who have it, we have to say just because we have it one way doesn't mean that that's the only way you can have it. Or that's the only way that the only acceptable way for you to develop it. Yeah, it's it's unique and presents differently. Every single person is unique in the way they experience something or their or how they're reacting to their lived experiences. For sure. Right. That reaction is usually guided by society. How do we want to look to people while we're trying to deal with this very difficult thing? Yeah. Well, and we and the peer appear a certain way in the midst of your struggle is is a hard thing to overcome. And that that insecurity that you get about how you appear to other people will drive you crazy in the effort to control yourself. Yeah. When we encourage a certain amount of shallow uh, shallowness almost that yeah you know when you go into an office setting and someone says have a good weekend you don't say well no i struggled all weekend <laughs> uh, i i hid under the blankets or i i 
I, I, I did something that I would never share with anyone ever because you'll think poorly of me or it might be perceived right. that I'm a whack job or whatever. Instead, you say, oh, fine. Yeah, it was good. And yeah. the dishonesty starts, right? You you program yourself to just say to everyone, yeah, every everything's fine. I'm fine. You're fine. Aren't we great? And if someone dares share something a little dark, you say, oh, they're always complaining, <laughs> right? Instead of asking the follow-up question going, hey, if you ever need to reach out or if you need help with something, or I felt that way one time and I actually went and talked to somebody and it made a world of difference. We never get to that part of the conversation because we we stay on the surface all the time, right? I have a I have a theory about that. It's the it's the eighty twenty. Uh, we only show them twenty percent. We don't show them the other eighty percent below the surface. They see the tip of our iceberg because most people can't respond when they when they say, "Hey, how are you." They, they, if we told them the truth, they wouldn't know how to respond because I think for the most part, they're dealing with that same stuff on their own and they don't know what to do with it. So much less how to help somebody else out yeah. in a meaningful way. It's easier, it's easier to detach when the conversation is left shallow. And detachment is a coping mechanism. Now, it's the, probably the most dangerous one that you can because that that is an avalanche to other you know worse maladaptive behaviors but the the ability to detach has to be tempered with the willingness to want to try to get better yeah unless you can strike a balance then one of them will drag you down but you, you have to you have to know how to emotionally remove yourself but still still care enough to be attentive to that individual and their needs and do what you can and be content with the effort. Yeah. I think, um, too, what comes into my mind when, when we're talking, I mean, you and I, we don't, we don't know each other, but I, I'm looking and listening, you know, looking what you share online and I'm listening to you now. And, and I, you know, what pops into my head is that, you know, is, is courage. Like Courage is like when people, how do you define success, right? It has a a definition unique to that person. Very subjective. Yeah, success, person, yeah. success might be, hey, you know what? I've managed to put $10 a week away uh, in my savings. For that person, that might be life-changing. You know, it's, it's relative, right? To someone who yeah. spends $10 on a cup of coffee might go, whatever. But courage i think is one of those things where you've kind of had to battle through and say no i i want to be here for my wife and kids i want to be uh my best version of myself for you know taking self-care takes courage doesn't it you have to be honest with yourself and think back like you say when when you were a child and think about all of those um you have to confront a lot of things and probably forgive a lot of things too right like make, oh, make peace with things forgiveness forgiveness will set you free yeah um forgiveness allows everything else to be possible and only through forgiveness can you let go of those things that are holding on to your attention because to forgive means to acknowledge the thing that a person did or said, accept their either accept their request or just to forgive them. But you take that thing that they said or did, accept that it was done and then put it behind you. And never consider it again. Remember it, but it's never a factor in anything else between you and that person going forward. Forgiveness means leaving that thing in the past forever, having learned your lesson from it, adjusting your, your behavior, adjusting your decision-making strategy based on it, but knowing that it's there, but never holding that against them. Yeah. 
So, <laughs> And that also means, more importantly, doing that to yourself. Forgiving yeah. other people is, is a challenge. Forgiving yourself, accepting your humanity, accepting your mortality, accepting your fallibility, accepting your imperfection, saying that I did the best that I could at this time with what I knew, or I willingly sabotage myself and I accept their consequences. I will never do that again. And I'm going, or I'll try to never do that again. And then the next day, just try to do better. Just try to be better than you were the day before. Yeah. And so the reason that I, I feel like, and I'm, and maybe people listening would say, wow, they're, they're down a rabbit hole, this tooling show. <laughs> but to me, <laughs> so to me, no, no, this is the conversation <laughs> I want to have. So it's, it's tied in together because unless you've gone on this journey, you can't create what you've created. I don't think like it's, it's an, it's almost like a report card, isn't it? Yeah, I, I see. I, I, I believe it is. This is a record. If you look at my gallery on my Facebook page, uh, Fantasia custom design, uh, on Facebook. Yeah. But if you look at my gallery and you go back to the very beginning, I think the very first year I posted anything was 2000 and 2011, but that's all work that I started in 2008. I mean, Facebook wasn't even a thing when I started Leatherwork, So I had a few years to catch up on, but you can see if you, if, if you care to, if you ever care to scroll through, uh, you know, all of it, you can see the changes that take place in my style and my, my textures and my combinations and things that I'm trying to do a little bit more bold, a little bit more experimental, a little bit more bigger projects. It's cool because it's like stratifications in the Grand Canyon. Yeah, You can look at the different sedimentary layers of my life through the, the, the projects that I've done. And every I can look back and see that piece. I, I know who I made that for. I know what the story was behind it. I remember the story of that person, but the story of my interaction with that person and everything that I look at. And I, I'm amazed at where I'm at, but I know that I'm here because it's where I wanted to be. And yeah. I, having a future, having goals are what you need in order to, to move for, beyond your trauma and move beyond your pain. You have to be able to forgive, figure out what you want to do. And then start setting goals and focus on those goals and nothing else. I mean, I'm not saying nothing and nobody else, but, you know, consider the people around you. If, if your goals are going to be a burden on your family, then consider your family and do the best thing that you can do to make that transition easy for them. Because your family is the reason why you're there. My family saved my life more times than they'll ever realize. Because they did give me something that I wanted to improve for. They did give me something that I wanted to be a better person for. I wanted to be a better husband. I want to be a better father. I wanted to be more to them than I ever really got from my life. So I believe in that. And I, and, and if you can set your goals with your family in mind, then and your intentions are good and honorable and everything is straight between you and God or your creator, then nothing, nothing else matters. Nobody else's opinion matters. And my wife and I almost, divorced over this as well because it got to a point where he was very pragmatic and looking at I should only be doing jobs that, that pay the bills for our family I need to be around a certain amount of time for the kids and yada 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 and I had to tell her I said look this is I'm trying to do this for my family I'm trying to create a business a family business that we can all do together this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life I have a day job I'm, I'm in school I'm, I'm providing for my family I'm paying the bills this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And if you're not a part of it, if you're not going to be with me by my side, then get out of my way and let me do it on my own. Yeah. But if you will do this with me, then we'll do this together. And your influence will always be the one that carries me forward. Yeah. This, this is where I'm talking about courage and honesty. They're tied in together, right? Because how many people capitulate? How many people kind of back down because of how horrible it would sound the words coming out of your mouth going I am on a journey and it's important to me like this is the uh, this isn't a 
a casual thing. Like you're healing yourself and it's survival. Yeah. Like, so it, it is, it is important. I, I, I can, I can feel that in you that, you know, that you meant it with, <laughs> you know, when you said, Hey, look, I, this, this path, because it's almost addictive, isn't it? I imagine when you oh. start to feel a little bit better and you think I, I need more. I like, this is awesome. <laughs> like, and uh, it, it, it takes hard Everything work. In moderation. Yeah. Yeah. So I w- had been doing a little bit of research. So, and, and this really, this show is about leather work and tooling, you know, um, I promise. It, it you know uh, this these are the conversations I want to have around leather work. I want you know I want to line up out the door of Tandy Leather um, after people when the penny drops. Going, yeah, you know, sitting at my desk, uh, even if you're writing code, you know that might be creative in some way. But you know, I I came across this thing. Uh, research shows that repetitive tasks done by the hand uses different neural pathways that allow the brain to generate calming signals in the body. And I think, you know, if you've ever done any kind of yoga, meditation, uh, anything mindfulness, uh, mm-hmm. it, you realize, like, when's the last time you, you actually took a real breath, a deep, calming, soothing breath. We're all <laughs> rushing around. Breath, yeah. Right? But this repetitive task thing, like when I'm asked, you know, some people find my job incredibly boring, like repairing saddles, working on saddles. And I'm like, how could, how could you find it boring? It's like every single saddle is a beautiful little story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And for someone like me, mm. it's a it's a short story. I'm with that saddle for two, three hours. And I left it better than I found it. And I feel the same amount of pride when I'm done yesterday as I did 15 years ago. It does not change. I feel, and I feel progression as I hone my technique. It might be just even how quickly can I do that knot that I've done a million times or... You know, it's it, whatever it is, whatever goal I set for myself, I'm still doing that simple repetitive task that I find calming. And I think tooling probably, like you say, you could do certain tooling techniques over and over and over and over again. And you will, you, it might not be obvious to anyone else's eye, but you'll know you're progressing, right? Absolutely. Yeah, even even in the finish, the, the the finish of the work was probably the the biggest indicator of my progression as a leather worker. Uh, period. Because in the very early years, I was all about raw, raw edges and you know hand crank stitching. It, it just, the the more the more rustic, the more uneven, the more imperfect, the more beautiful it was. Because that was my justification for the the quality work that I did. It's like, it's not, it's amateur, but it's rustic, you know, because it's beautiful and it's, it's rusticism. But as I got older and I realized, I, I understood about beveling and sanding my edges down and getting a nice finish and taking the time on my bevels and taking care in certain areas and going over a line three or four times with my modeling tools to get the effect that I'm looking for. But that care came with, ability and that ability came with my awareness that I could do these things and beauty is they've every product has been beautiful just some have a different finish than others and that finish to me is kind of a reflection of the finish on myself but I think my finish is more internal I've done some external things to to, to heal myself but uh, a lot of the the internal polish has shined up on me yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. So what's you you know what this is is done for you? Do you do you reach out to other maybe veterans or you know, how do you do you share this with anybody this experience? 
Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, initially, it was just about you know me doing these projects for myself, and then when I when I started to get some attention from friends and family and people at church, and I realized that this was something that could be a business, then I started to focus on really trying to to grow my skills and to to advance my my repertoire, my catalog of things that I could do. Um, oh, I, I, I got myself off of my, my rails. What was that question again? Well, you know, I guess the question is, you know, do you, do you share this type of therapy with yeah. other people that, that maybe could benefit from it? Or has anyone ever reached out and said, Hey, like just hanging out in your, in your area where you do your tooling, whether it's a garage or shed or, wherever and, yeah and and just you know just say hey look uh this is a safe place i find when people are in my shop we have the 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 coolest conversations and uh there's a reason for it like it's uh when your hands are busy you're focused on that task you're not making eye contact which is kind of um I'm not confrontational is the wrong word, but, you know, I'm just wondering, like, have you ever, you know, similar, yeah. similar to group therapy, group therapy. So I'm curious about that. Okay. The, um, it all started when we were going up, my family and I took these annual road trips up to Tennessee to see my mom and, uh, my aunt, they live together. And my aunt asked me since I was going to bring my leatherworking stuff and do some, some, personal project on my vacation she asked if i would be willing to meet with a a gentleman that she she is a caseworker for um he had got injured on the job and he was you know had some back problems and gained some weight and was kind of a bit a bit reclusive and said would i just mind you know meet with him and talking to him maybe show him how to do some other work because she saw what it did for me and wanted to know if i could you know, share my experience or share leatherworking with somebody who's been through something similar to what I had been through. Like, absolutely. I would love to, his name's David. And so we got there. I, I got unpacked and got settled in, set up and everything. And they came over the next day and quiet guy. We didn't really say a whole lot, but I taught him how to make a, a little leather case for a lighter for his wife. And it was a simple little case, but talking him through, introducing him to the material, introducing him to the, the tools, um, discussing what, you know, uh, full grain veg tan cowhide is versus oil tan or anything like that. Here's what a, a, a tooling knife looks like, or a box cutter, just showing him the stuff and the, the stains and the options that are out there. And when he realized that there were options and that he could draw his own picture on the leather and make his own impressions and make it permanent and then add color and stitch and use different threads and clips and belt loops, he was, you could see the very reserved, withdrawn, hesitant, avoidant personality. The eyes got bigger and they got brighter and he started to, he started to talk to me and, you know, asking me questions and we were talking back and forth probably two or three hours from start to finish. And then when he finished and he gave this beautiful little, you know, handcrafted, hand-stitched, hand-painted, stained gift to his wife, and she cried and she hugged him and they hugged each other and gave each other a kiss and told him, I love you, and they left, walked out the door and went home. And I thought that was cool. You know, that was neat. I, I, I enjoyed that. And... My aunt told me after they left that that they'd, they'd seen more interaction from him with me and his wife and the rest of them in those three hours than they had seen in the last several months. Nice. That the impact was life-changing. And he has since then, I, I sent him a, um, a bucket of tools and stuff from Tandy to have these little pre-made uh, craftsman's buckets with projects and tools and stains and everything that you need. 
I sent that to him for his birthday. And he's gone through and he's made everything in there. He started doing leather. I mean, he started going outside and getting on his bike and making stuff for his motorcycle. And now he and his wife are out and about and happy and healthy. And it's like, it's like a different person, but it's the same guy that I met that night that I was sitting there at that table making a, 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 a wallet or a, a lighter case. The guy that I see now that everybody sees now is the guy that I met 10 years ago at that table. And to see those changes take place, to see that is like, I was, I was addicted to that. I was like, holy, if, if, if this craft has that kind of impact, then I want to make that craft available to anybody. So when I started to do it, anybody that, that liked my work and they said they wanted to learn something, I taught them. I didn't, I, I gave them free lessons. I, I never charged for anything. If some that they liked, the way something was, then I give them the tool, the material, and I say, "Here, go take this and, and go practice and make something." And um, you know, I'll, I'll just I'll buy myself that tool again. Don't worry about it. Just take what you take what you want and go play, go have fun. If you take that scrap and 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 wet it and mold it into something and see what kind of shapes you can make. Yeah, that's beautiful. At one point, at one point, I had a shop. And everyone was at that shop with me all the time. People drifted in off the street. People found me through other people. People came to me because they smelled leather coming out the door. And I have been friends with those people for the last going on eight years now. And they're still, they're my best friends. They're my brothers and sisters. And there's even more coming. Once I finish school, I'm going to start the business back up, but it's going to be a much larger mental health uh, enterprise. It's, it's, it's my, my big dream is going to come true. Yeah. Yeah. I re- well, anything, anything, um, I don't know how, but if, if you ever need help promoting that or, or talking about that, please reach out. Cause I'm such a, Oh, I'm gonna don't worry about that. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. <laughs> I, I will, I will definitely, I, I hope that you and I stay in touch even after this, because I, I, your story and my story, we sound like we've got some similarities, and I, I do really would like to get to know more about you. Yeah, we, oh, I appreciate that. I mean, the the podcast and me uh, going online, reaching out to, to and 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 finding people like yourself is part of my journey and and development and um, understanding myself better. Uh, and I and I, I think you know the podcast or uh, I could never. I'm not a writer. Like I could not, you know, blog about something or write articles or anything. But you know, talking about something <laughs> is my jam. And uh, when I when I see other people that are you know just like yourself, you're you're pretty clear uh, that you're communicating something that you're on a mission that, you know, and, and the, and that's what this is about. I am trying to reach out and share and that people, uh, you know, for, for not a lot of money, you can buy, you know, a shoulder from Tandy and a couple of tools, um, you know, other, you know, providers are out there, but Tandy is like the easiest, most accessible thing. And, um, you know, it, it, it's not one of, it's, it's not necessarily cost prohibitive. I mean, you could, you could generally no. mo- within most people's reach to get into this as a hobby and they're limited by their imagination, right? <laughs> like yeah. how cool yeah. is that? And, uh, and you don't need, you know, it's, it's, it's like, oh, I'd like to, you know, rebuild a motorcycle someday or want to do this or that, or get into cabinetry. It's like, those it's not a couple of dollar thing and um it, like i just find leather leather work leather tooling uh it's something that's goes back centuries and centuries to, to like you know uh, it's it's in it's it's part of our our makeup our ancestors did it you know to provide shelter and clothing and to carry products and and use it to uh you know fur trading and everything is part of just everything and so to to see people 
connecting with it and doing it um and that it's still you know like wearable art uh is the coolest wearable thing to art. me yeah i mean yeah. Like, you know and uh it was interesting it just it's been a few months now that i've been doing this research and that i wanted to start this podcast and i and it's you know i've been a saddler for 25 years now and i phoned my mom and i said uh is it my imagination or was there like i remember like belt blanks and and like tooling tools like like around when i was a little kid is that and my father had a million hobbies like he was uh people used to think i i he was fictitious because i'd be like oh yeah my dad does that <laughs> you know he was like you know this sounded like the t- typical like oh my dad's a superhero but it, no he literally like that girlfriend Canada when you're in the eighth grade right yeah and it's... yeah if, uh, <laughs> i guess that's, that's funny to us down here in texas because you know when you're when you're young and, and everyone's asking hey you know do you have a girlfriend like oh yeah i've got a I have, a, I have a girlfriend, but she's, she lives up in Canada. We only see each other in the summers. It's that elusive thing that they'll <laughs> they'll never probably see, but you can safely say. But I just realized I'm talking to a guy in Canada about a fake girlfriend in Canada. So that whole thing. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, what are you talking about? <laughs> so, uh, you know, but what's funny to me, like I said to my mom, like, well, what, what was the leather doing around? Because, you know, and she said, oh, I, you know, it was actually prescribed to him. So he, a work-related accident, but he, he fell at work um, uh, quite badly. Like it was a, it broke his back. So spinal injuries in the 70s, it's totally different today. They Things are handled much better and technology and medical advances come a long way. But he was in the hospital for, you know, I would have been four, I think at the time, or three or four and, um, you know, I have these vague memories of, of visiting him in the hospital and stuff, but it was, you know, in traction, um, in their term, like 18 months or something crazy. And, uh, anyway, it was the doctor, I think literally was like, start tooling. Um, and I think they probably could have easily prescribed, uh, knitting, you know, and again, it came down to that enhancing fine motor skills after yeah. being laid out flat on your back for so long. And uh, it's something you could do sitting in a wheelchair, you know, like, and yeah. I, I just thought, I, you know, even in my own immediate family, I wasn't aware that it was playing a role. Um, you know, my father was a cabinet maker by trade, but obviously the leather work never took off with him. It didn't spark something, but, but he went on to carve, uh, incredible uh things um that his carvings are all over all over like he, he shared that and, and gave a ton away gave it, it, it was not a financial venture um you know and being the youngest of five you're almost like i bet you you could sell that maybe <laughs> but it was not the point <laughs> right um and it was uh, i could tell you know looking back i mean he's he's not with us any longer but i could tell um that that was uh where he was getting his therapy from uh so whether it's tooling carving um leather work for me just you know i've i've actually never tried tooling i'm very curious about it but at the same time i'm kind of like i actually get what i need out of the leather trade so i don't feel like I. Have... that's important if, if you find that thing that, that makes if you find that thing that makes you happy whatever do that thing. And if you want to modify that thing, if you want to add to it, if, if saddle read and saddle repair is your jam, wonderful. Do that for the rest of your life. And when you want to explore other aspects of it, explore them at your leisure and never compare your result to anybody else's result ever. Yeah. That's a, you and that thing, that's your equation. Those are your variables. That's all that matters, right? Those variables for that thing right there. Comparing that equation to any other variable of time, it's, it's, it's pointless, even to what you've done before. You can't compare a saddle that you've done today to one that you did 10, 10 years ago and without some dissatisfaction. You're a different person. Yep. 
every and, every encounter is a unique one. It needs to be appreciated uniquely. And and you can look back too and say, hey, you know what? At the time, I was pretty proud of myself. Uh, Ten years ago, when I did that, um, and now I look back at it and almost laugh, like, oh, that was pretty bad. But I was happy at the time with it. Um, but also, I can tell too, just when you're doing work that requires uh, attention to detail, I guess. Uh, it's so evident when you're having a bad day. And it is. you actually get, oh, I, you know, I instant feedback. I, had, I have an embarrassing one, man. Um, when I was learning how to tool, I was watching a lot of Cake Boss uh, while I was at my desk. You remember that show, Cake Boss, with Buddy Velastro and that New Jersey bakery? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I watched, I, I, I was addicted to that show because the not only what he was doing with cake, I mean, I'm an Italian, he's an Italian. Uh, he, he was doing stuff with modeling chocolate and fondant that I was kind of doing on on leather work with, with the modeling, with the, the, the tooling, I was getting a lot of the same effects. So I was learning a lot about tooling and design and decorating from watching him. So as a thank you, I made this really kind of elaborate Bible cover that incorporated all the aspects of his life, the, the uh, mosaic Italian cross in the front, the, the, the national crest of Lipidi, Italy, where his family's from, the, the Giants, which is his favorite football team. I mean, I, I did this thing up. And I made the mistake. I wrote his name, Buddy Velastro, on the front, and I misspelled his last name. I, I misspelled it in the tooling. And it wasn't until I was already like about to package it up that I realized that I'm about to send make this thing for this guy that I appreciate so much. And I I misspelled tooled his last name on and I was like it took me three weeks to fix that mistake and make it not look like one. But I was so embarrassed. I thought this was going to be a nice tribute to a person who was an inspiration to me. And I just insulted them by goofing up. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? I think that's the human element, right? Like, and I tried. My intentions were good. I tried. Yeah. And I, I had to learn to be okay with that. Yeah. You know, I never, um, you know, all I hear is that you, you poured your heart into some art to thank someone <laughs> you know, it didn't matter to me if, uh, you know, but that's just such a, yeah, a cool, uh, it cool is, story. It's still more than anybody else would have done. It's still my, it was my gesture to him. And I, I learned a valuable lesson about, about errors or mistakes, quote unquote. Yeah. Yeah. There's, but... you can have a plan for how something's supposed to turn out. You can have a plan how you want something to look when you start a project. You can say that I'm going to make this thing, this saddle, this Bible cover, whatever it is, I'm going to make this thing look this way. And then you'll, if you're fighting with the result all the way through the process, you're, you're trying to force it into its final existence. And then you're never going to be happy with the way that it, it comes out. Cause it's never going to meet that initial expectation. Yeah. But if you allow it to become what it's meant to become, let it be what it's meant to be. Use your initial thing as a guideline, but it's going to be, it's going to end up the way it's meant to end up. And it's going to be unique handmade, lovingly crafted piece of durable art. And everything, when I saw that and I look at myself and I think back to all the stuff that I consider to be a flaw in me, in my life growing up, a mistake, an accident, something that I didn't do, quote-unquote, right at the time. And I look at where I'm at right now in my life. I mean, I, I'm a husband going on my 19th year of marriage. I've got three children, 12, uh, 10, 12, and 16, with a wonderful dog. I've got a great job. I'm in, in school again. I'm learning and growing. And all the things that I did, including the mistakes, the quote-unquote mistakes, are the things that got me to the point where I'm at right now, which is awesome. Yeah. So how can those things be anything other than unintentionally awesome? It's just 
mistakes are, are usually just precursors to other things down the road that we have to wait and be patient and see how they turn out. But we're not patient. And that patience, that lack of patience, deteriorates our coping mechanism. So we have to be patient. We have to accept that things are going to be what they are. And we can only control things so much and just let go and go with it. Take care and control what you can, but don't hold on so tight and don't ever laugh at anything that you ever did before. Don't, I know, I know what you were saying earlier, but don't ever look back on anything that you ever did and, and laugh at it or, or, uh, you know, disregard it because, that was the best that you could do at, the, at that time. And that was still effort that you put into it that it should be honored and cherished and appreciated and never, never derided. And that's why I like the Japanese culture so much. They are, they are in the pursuit of perfection, but they are pragmatic about their ability to achieve perfection. And they don't, deride themselves they have a noble pursuit but they also appreciate their humanity and we have to do that because when there's a, 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 a quote that i'm going to paraphrase that when we diminish ourselves we diminish the warrior inside us we have to honor ourselves including our efforts and our intentions and be appreciative of our efforts and our intentions and their nobility and their integrity and their honor and their love and their care and their forgiveness and never look back at anything that we've ever done in, in, in pursuit of kindness and greatness and ever laugh at it or, or diminish it. I, that's, that's the downward spiral. That's very subtle. That can lead to bigger things. And I, I, I just, I want to caution against that. Yeah, no, it's, it's very wise words for sure. Well, man, this has been a fantastic conversation. I'm going to end it here because I think at some point we're going to circle back and we're going to have another great conversation <laughs> And uh, as, as our journeys continue. So, I hope so. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Thank you very much for, for letting me go on some of those long-winded rants. But uh, I appreciate a good conversation with willing conversants and with like-minded opinions and backgrounds this is a very easy conversation to have so thank you thank you very much hi this is tony fantasia with fantasia custom design and i'm glad to be with you here today on the Sadler's post i live just outside san antonio texas with my wife three kids and my dog archie i have a day job where I, I work uh, as a data scientist for the Air Force and I'm a, a leather worker as time allows while I'm working my way through school. This has been the Saddler's Post with Christian Lowe. Thank you for listening. The Saddler's Post is sponsored by Christian Lowe Leather Care. Visit christianlowe.ca